Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast. This week, Tim Burton directs a mammoth Dumbo update for Disney, but is he up to the task? Plus, the art newspaper's Martin Bailey talks to us about Van Gogh portrait at Eternity's Gate, and we decide just how much we're loving this Vincent. I'm Jake Cunningham, and wielding canvases of conversation and etchings of insights, I'm joined by Ella Kemp. Hello. Sam Howlett. Hello. And Stephen Ryder. Hello. How are you all doing? Very good. good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. another glorious week at the cinema, isn't it? It always is. <laughs> it always is. That is the right answer. Um, so we, we will start, I think, with At Eternity's Gate. So uh, this has earned an Oscar nomination for Willem Dafoe, playing Vincent van Gogh, uh, who leads an ensemble full of starry might, including Oscar Isaac as Paul Gauguin and Rupert Friend as Theo van Gogh. Uh, here we find Defoe's Vincent as a complex, troubled soul. He's committed to an asylum at one point. He's seeking a new visual language, whilst also struggling to make sense of himself and his connection to those around him. And we're going to talk to the art newspaper's Martin Bailey all about uh, the artist and get a bit more background about him and the period of his life that this film covers. Um, and this this is a new film directed by Julian Schnabel. Uh, Sam, for listeners who might not know the name, they might know his films. Yeah, so Julian Schnabel, he was actually an artist himself uh, in the 80s and 90s um, in the sort of New York scene. Uh, he's probably, I think, for everyone in this room, his most famous work is the By The Way album cover. Red oh, yeah, album. yeah, I remember it very well. That was him. And his first film was a uh, the Jean-Michel Basquiat film with Jeffrey Wright, Basquiat. Um, and he kind of he hung out with him and he was in that kind of scene when he was younger he moved into feature filmmaking I think his most famous film because he's only made about five or six but his most famous film is uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly which if you haven't seen is a really beautiful film um, I'm really a big fan of that film actually and so obviously a filmmaker and an artist it makes perfect sense that he would move in to make uh, this film about the world's most famous artist mm. and it's interesting um that this feels like a, a nice pairing to where he started his career. The, the Basquiat film, uh, when you look at it, it's actually fairly, his death is fairly recent mm. to the creation of that film. And he's working with someone who's very much a contemporary artist who is still part of the zeitgeist at the time of that film's creation. Um, 
and that's how he started his career. And now, 25 years later, we're seeing him again tackle someone whose whose life and death is hugely significant within the art world, but for very much uh, an older figure. Yeah, absolutely, and it ties in nicely with obviously the um, uh, the Van Gogh exhibition at the Tate. That's happening at the moment as well. So there's all these nice things tying together about the release of this film. And it's interesting that you call him an older figure when, you know, in, in the film he mentioned that maybe he's a painter that's kind of like out of time. Mm. That he, he was he was painting at a time when his when his paintings weren't going to be recognised. So in a way, like I think a lot of people these days do look at Van Gogh as a kind of a, as a modern painter, just who painted a long time ago. Mm, yeah. All right. Um, so to get a bit more of a background on the, the great man, here is our very own Curzon blog editor, Ryan Hewitt and the art newspaper's Martin Bailey. So before we begin, can you just clarify and make sure that I'm saying Van Gogh's name correctly? Um, I'm afraid not, but it's very oh, no. difficult to say correctly because um, the English find it almost impossible to pronounce the um, Dutch, which is something I hope, but even I can't do it properly. But it is complicated because in America he's called Van Gogh and in France they all call him Van Gogh. Um, so Van Gogh. It's, it's actually quite difficult and um, we could say Vincent and he always wanted to be called Vincent he said because foreigners couldn't pronounce his name they murdered his name and that's why uh, th- that's why he actually signs his paintings Vincent it's slightly unusual to use your Christian name but he did oh that is unusual yeah so should we agree to refer to him as Vincent from let's now on? do that excellent so I'm joined by Martin Bailey correspondent for the art newspaper specialist on all things Van Gogh Vincent I should say and uh, author of a number of books about the artist, including most recently, Starry Night, I'm going to have to say, Van Gogh at the Asylum. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, could, you, could you tell us a little bit about your book? Because I understand it covers a period that we actually see in Julian Schnabel's film, At Eternity's Gate. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, the book Starry Night is on the year that he spent at the asylum after he cut his ear and mutilated his ear. And... Um, quite a bit of so much has been written on van gogh but there's been very little detailed study of exactly what happened at the asylum and what life was like and i actually found an unpublished and unknown register of the patients at the asylum and there were only 18 men and that enabled me to provide a context of what it must have been like to be at the asylum and i think it must have been a terrible place i mean the other patients were in very dire um, conditions. Um, uh, you know, one of them couldn't speak, and he was sometimes violent and broke furniture. Well, that's not surprising if you can't communicate. So Van Gogh was living in a very difficult situation and circumstances, and part of that is portrayed in the film. That's right. He's in, during those sequences. He speaks a lot about. Uh, sort of a divine calling that he seemed to feel that it was his purpose on earth to paint is that something that felt authentic to you that uh, idea of him as having this sort of almost illusions of grandeur but perhaps justifiably well, I wouldn't quite put it like that it certainly wasn't divine in a religious sense um, he felt he, he had an enormous commitment uh, to painting um, he felt he was doing the right thing and he felt it was the one thing in life he needed to do and I don't think he would have survived his year at the asylum if he hadn't had painting to distract him. It was his way of um, escaping from the terrible realities of, and indignities of daily life. And it gave him a purpose and a reason to live. 
And of course, we must be thankful for what he produced during that year, because he produced a huge number of paintings, including some of his um, greatest works, pictures of irises, the starry night canvas, um, and the wonderful landscapes of Provence, which is so well portrayed in the film. And the film itself is called At Eternity's Gate, and that's uh, the name of one of his paintings. Is it uh, Sorrowing, uh, Sorrowing Old Man? Yes, there's a, there's a painting that he did at the asylum, which is called At Eternity's Gate. And it was when he was not in good health and he was unable to go outside the asylum to explore the, the landscape of Provence. Um, so he asked his brother to send some of his earlier works and some prints. And one of the prints which his brother sent him from Paris was one he'd done many years earlier of an old man with his head in his hands. And Van Gogh did a large version of that in oil paints. And I think it's very interesting, but there were two men who were aged 77, which was quite old in those days, who were at the asylum. And I suspect that the picture may have been partly based by seeing them in the common room uh, with looking depressed with their head in their hands. Um, so um, it's a very apt title for the film. So. The film uh, it depicts a period of Vincent's life when he had a very close working relationship with Paul Gauguin. And is that something that is overstated in the film or was it, very, was it as significant as it seems to be? In the it film? was very important. I mean, Van Gogh, when he arrived in Arles, he moved into a little house which he called the Yellow House and he wanted to share it with uh, one of his progressive artist friends from Paris. This was partly to save money and partly because he thought it'd be stimulating and interesting to work w with someone else. And then Gauguin came um, and he spent two months with Vincent in Arles. Um, to begin with, uh, it was very productive and they put their easels up side by side. Um, but they increasingly um, argued with each other. Um, they would go to the bars in the evening and um, end up discussing art and got very heated. And the relationship soured. And uh, it was at the end of this, this period was ended when Van Gogh uh, had some sort of mental attack, mutilated his ear, and Van Gogh um, uh, went to the hospital and Gauguin returned to Paris. But artistically, Gauguin played an important role in Van Gogh's development of his art, and it was a stimulating and exciting collaboration. Uh, is there a particular work where you can really see that change, that influence, and in what he was doing before and after his time with Gauguin, or is it more a, a more subtle development? It's mainly more subtle, but Gauguin uh, felt it was very important to work from the imagination. Van Gogh was much more in favour of working in front of what he was painting. So he needed to go out into the landscape to see the olive trees and then paint the olive trees. Gauguin's approach was rather different and he would do something which was much more imaginative and uh, symbolic, if you like. Now, both approaches have their pros and cons. Um, but and uh, Van Gogh tried adopting Gauguin's stress on the imagination, but he found that difficult. And in the end, he really went back to relying on what he could see. So when he was at the asylum, for example, he would look out of his bedroom window, which had bars on um, to prevent um, accidents, and he would uh, paint the wheat field below in different seasons, in different weathers, uh, and that was his inspiration. Um, so 
the next thing I want to ask you is about this film is slightly controversial in some respects, particularly in the art world, for the way it depicts Van Gogh's death. In the film, we see a sequence where he's outside and he's painting a picture uh, and two young men walk over, one described as looking like Buffalo Bill, and they're carrying a gun. There's a scuffle, Vincent is shot, the painting is stolen, it's buried, the gun is thrown into a, a river, and then we, we it's suggested that he was murdered, but I understand that the official line on, on what happened to Vincent is that he committed suicide. Well, that is the accepted wisdom, that it's suicide. Um, the theory that Van Gogh was um, either murdered or uh, was killed in man, as manslaughter um, was first really put forward in a biography which was published by two American authors in 2011. Um, that was by Nathan Smith. I never believed that theory. Um, I am convinced that it was suicide. And the main reason I would say for the suicide theory is that that's what all his friends and family thought. Um, his friend Emil Bernard wrote a letter to say that he'd committed suicide in full lucidity. And uh, Theo, his brother, believed that he'd committed suicide. The church in Auvers, where he uh, died, um, thought it was suicide. And because of that, um, they were unwilling to allow a hearse to be used, the church hearse. Suicide at that time in a Catholic country was very much frowned upon. And it's difficult to believe that everyone, including Van Gogh, would have claimed it was suicide when it wasn't. That's the simple answer. I mean, one can go into all sorts of complicated details, but in simple terms, that's why I think it was suicide. And do you know where the the, the idea that it was ever murder came from? Or was there presumably there's something that suggests that even if it is as you say discredited yes there was um someone in the 1950s who'd been a young boy in over who wrote an article uh, which uh, was rather unclear about the circumstances of uh, van gogh's death and suggested that he might have been involved but he didn't explicitly say that he had killed van gogh and it was this article which led the two american uh, biographers um, to put forward the theory. Now it's interesting that it's put forward in the film, but of course um, it's it's an artistic film and um, it's Schnabel's interpretation of what might have happened. But I think it's important that viewers d don't look at the film as a documentary, but they look upon it as an artist's interpretation of what might happened. Indeed, and I think Julian has said himself that he sees the work as a as a work of fiction, uh, more an expression of what he thinks Van Gogh and his work was, rather than, like, as you say, a biopic to be taken as as, as true. That's correct. Although um, I doubt that the posters uh, <laughs> say that it's a work of fiction. There's something interesting about this idea of new works being uncovered. I think, if I'm right in saying, as recently as last month in San Francisco, a new work of of Vincent's has been authenticated. Is it still life with fruit and chestnuts? Yes, that's right. And I published that story in, in the art newspaper where I do a blog. Um, yes, um, a lot of people think that they've got uh, genuine Van Gogh um, paintings and drawings. And I probably hear uh, from maybe two people every week. Um, they're very rarely true that they are authentic. In the case of the San Francisco painting, 
it had an uncertain status for many years in the museum and it was then finally examined at the Van Gogh Museum where they've got the proper facilities and expertise and they can sort of look under the paint and they have deemed that it is authentic. Now, coming back to the film, um, yes, um, Schnabel in the film uh, puts forward this idea that there was um, uh, this group of 64 unknown sketches which were in a ledger. Now, I think I am convinced those drawings are not authentic and they have been examined by the Van Gogh Museum who have the specialists who've come to the same conclusion. At the end of the film, there's some text which comes on the screen in a form which doesn't appear earlier in the film and it says that Madame Ginou, who was um, the woman who ran the Café de la Gare when Van Gogh lodged for a short time, it says Madame Ginou never knew Vincent had returned the account ledger to her having filled it with 65 drawings. The ledger was found 126 years later in 2016. Now that's not actually true because I saw the drawings in 2010 six years earlier and at that time I had very serious doubts about their authenticity and I never pursued the matter so that's actually factually incorrect but I think it's a bit misleading of Schnabel to put this up at the end as facts and I think they will be interpreted as facts because of the way uh, the letters appear on the screen um, so um, I think he's gone slightly too far at the end <laughs> Um, but with regards to Julian's interpretation of, of things, there have been a number of films about Vincent throughout the years. Um, are there any in particular that stand out as being very true to your understanding of who he was? And how do you do you think that at Eternity's Gate, for all of the uh, imagination, imaginary leaps that it may take here and there, is it a good view, a good uh, depiction of the man? Well, films have certainly had a huge impact on the way the public um, perceives Van Gogh. I mean, the first major film was Lust for Life, and uh, everyone remembers the title of that, and that was produced in the 1950s, and it was based on a novel which was written in the 1930s. And since Lust for Life, there have been a stream of films on Van Gogh. Most of them make extensive use of his letters, and there are hundreds and hundreds of letters. So they at least have some sort of truth in the words that are spoken in the films. Uh, Schnabel has opted to do something different and um, I quite understand why. Uh, why do another, another, yet another film on Van Gogh? So he's done something much more imaginative and he's an artist, um, a painter himself as well as a filmmaker. So it's his interpretation. It's probably much less true than uh, most of the other films or many of the other films um, but Schnabel was interested not really in simply recounting the story of Van Gogh he's much more interested in the process of art and what is involved and I think that's what he's trying to bring over so I think it's important that viewers uh, should look at the film in that light um, the last thing I want to ask you, Martin, is I understand that you are also involved in the new exhibition at Tate Britain. Uh, is there, if, if someone were to see the film and then go to the exhibition or the other way around, is there, some, is there a nice companion piece in those two 
things? Is there a particular work in on display that they should gra- gravitate towards? Is well, they're there... actually very different, and uh, but equally interesting. Um, Schnabel's film is about Van Gogh's years in France, in Paris and Provence and Auvergne, where he committed suicide. So the last few years of his life. The exhibition at Tate Britain is about Van Gogh's early period when he was working in London, in Covent Garden actually, as an art dealer, which may come as a surprise. Um, And he was here for several years. He came when he was 20, which is a very impressionable age for anyone. And um, he, uh, he really became very interested in English art, English literature and English culture. And he learnt to speak English very well. Um, So the exhibition is about his years in England and the second half of the show is about the influence of Van Gogh on later British artists. So there's two parts to the show. So they're actually entirely different parts of Vincent's life. Go to Tate Britain and see the very early years before he took up his paintbrush and go and see the Schnabel film to see what happened when he picked up the brush. Okay, so thank you so much, Martin, uh, for lending us your thoughts there. Um, Let's dive into this film and, in a broader sense, approach it as a biopic uh, in recent weeks because it has been the Oscar season. It's been something that we talked about a lot and we talked about the different ways that films want to approach it, how different directors uh, will leave their their certain brushstrokes on it, if you will. Um, Ella, how, how does Julian Schnabel approach this? I think he approaches this biopic extremely differently. I must admit I was quite sceptical going into this because, as you say, we have seen so many biopics recently. You know, there's been On the Basis of Sex, Vice, The Front Runner, all kinds of different things in different spheres. And I think a lot of recent biopics, for me, suffer because the film relies on how exciting the person is rather than building some kind of work of art around it and really throwing you into the world of this person and this kind of yeah completely new universe whereas I turn to his gate is <laughs> it's kind of insane how different it is as a film and even just from the moment that everything is so shaky physically visually sh- sonically everything is completely unstable from start to finish um in a way that can be deemed, you know, immersive and exciting, but also a bit seasick. So, I think that can have a bit of a um, a bit of a trying impact on a moviegoer who just, you know, wants to know a bit more about Van Gogh in, in the same way that other biopics are kind of. Um, yeah, this is this is not a BBC Four film about right. Van Gogh. Yeah, it's like really innovative and daring and bold you know kind of like the artist you could say i think i think that's what's so exciting about this is you do look at a new film about van gogh coming out and you say to yourself like uh why Mm. why 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 are you doing this again uh why on the poster why 2019 (laughs) but the fact is he takes he takes this film he takes this painter he takes this icon and he molds something as you said i think it's really that's a really important point is he molds something around him rather than just focusing purely on you know um who was this man and what did he do he molds a world around him and that's what's so exciting i think about eternity's gate okay well something that uh i struggle with with um these artistic portrait films is when a filmmaker may try and inhabit the artwork style of the artist within the film um and almost 
rather than try and just give them the the kind of adoration that maybe they d- and respect that they deserve it feels like they're trying to match them in some way um do you think Schnabel struggles with that? I, I know, like, I don't think the film is immediately accessible, and I, and I certainly struggled with it at points because of that reason. I think that Schnabel approaches um, um, Van Gogh as a um, improviser. He approaches him as somebody who, I mean, he puts at the end of the film that he, during the portion, a large portion of this film was um, was spent in eighty days, and he did seventy five paintings during that time. You know, he he portrays him as someone who improvised his paintings. He didn't think very long; it was all one long stroke of the brush. And I think that it's that is the mimicry that we're seeing here. Is Schnabel seems to have taken a very improvisational approach with this film. The camera seems to have just sat in a room with. Willem Dafoe as he inhabits this character and followed him around and we've seen it cut up into these kind of bite-sized pieces um, I think in the editing room there's been a lot of improvisation regarding I think sonically like you said there's a lot of repetition of sound and repetition of images there's the first person kind of uh, point of view shots there's the focus going in and out um, and all that kind of adds up to this very kind of messy palette in exactly the same way that you'd see Van Gogh's paintings However, it's not like um, the animation that came out last year, which, you know, was kind of very nice to look at, but in my opinion, not particularly enthralling in the slightest. I felt mean, like a video that's more game. Of a, a, an achievement. Yeah, and it opens, Loving Vincent opens with the title saying, the film you're about to see is made up of this many original paintings. And it also says it at the end as well. So I felt <laughs> like, what do you what, not want me to look at anything else? It just kind of, you know, mute the film and... I think, yeah, I think Schnabel is a lot more interested. I mean, there's a quote from him that says um, that this is not the official history. It's my version, one that I hope can make you closer to him. And I think he's been very open about, um, you know, this film not being a historical kind of biopic. It's a um, experiential one. It's a kind of expressive biopic yeah, rather uh, than an impressionistic one, which is a conversation, again, that they have within the film. So Yeah, um, whether this rubs you the right way or wrong, to me, this kind of feels like if later stage Terence Malick decided 100%. to make a Vincent Van Gogh. Very Malicky. So, so yeah. Malicky. There's so many like fields of wheat as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. But it's, it's that, I think that it's that song to song Knight of Cups Malick. Mm. This is not a Badlands Malick feeling that I think is here. Um, and, and I think let, let's delve into the performance because it obviously got Willem Dafoe's Oscar nomination. And I think this film wants to make you aware of the fact it is a performance. And when you look at um, Schnabel's previous films, he even directed a concert film as well. Mm. Uh, I think he's very focused in on the idea of performance. He's Yeah, well, Willem's not defoning it in. Hey. <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> but I was... <laughs> the whole awards season... <laughs> but throughout the whole awards season, Willem Dafoe wasn't getting talked about. He was talked about as kind of a dark horse or even like a few ranks below a dark horse. And he wasn't really getting those big nominations until the Oscars, which is really, I think it's really interesting when someone can be ignored all awards season and suddenly be given one of the biggest accolades, you know, just to be nominated, obviously, is incredible. So this performance has captured a certain part of an audience. I think it's the actors that noticed that. Mm. So this film, as you'll have seen in the trailer and all the, Im- and all the posters, you know, it's his face is the key thing about this film. And you've got all these incredible shots of the background, but mostly I think what you can't thinking about is Willem Dafoe's face. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And 
the camera it, it's not just a close-up it's an extreme close-up it's like an alarming close-up yeah and th- it's this in, is something like even recently bill yeah. street first man the favorite we're seeing a lot of this yeah. at the moment yeah and they're like properly like invasive close-ups it's, as well it feels like an interrogation yeah it's when almost, talking, almost uncomfortable yeah. how close the camera is to his face in this film and i think you know these are all films you said first man the star is born these are all films that are so you know they're telling these big fantastic stories but what they really care about is these characters and i think on the most basic way to do that is just to show the characters yeah. just kind of cutting out the rest of the fat in a sense and more so with first man than any of those others you know eternity's gate and first man are films about very famous almost mythical legendary figures in our culture that we look back on and we don't really think of them as people we think about what they achieved and both um schnabel and chazelle i think wanted to get rid of what they achieved in a sense but have it in the background but really want you to look at these people as people mm. and how that affected them and you know the most sort of primal way to do that is just looking at their face I, and looking I, at how their eyes twitch i, I think the, their most, move. the best example of that is his conversation with mad mickelson when uh it really feels as though he's got he convinces you that he's got delusions of grandeur mm. when in reality yeah. He's the most famous yeah, painter yeah. of all time. Uh, but he convinces you, you're like, oh, Vincent, it's never going to work for you, mate. And you're like, no, you know, he, he's that kind of uh, inside himself. Mm. You can't see him succeeding, at least in the time that he's alive. Yeah. I think that's an incredible achievement for, you know, Defoe to, to, to get. But then it's the same with Neil Armstrong in First Man, in that these... Both Vincent Van Gogh and Neil Armstrong seem like two men who don't know how to talk about their feelings. Mm. And so they're... Instead, as an audience member, you see the world like you have to see it through their eyes because they can't like spell out the words that someone else who would be I don't know have the framing device of a therapist therapist be like oh this is everything that's going through my mind everything that's wrong with me so instead you have to have this visual way in that's really mm. arresting and I think it only works if you've got actors who are as good as Ryan Gosling as Willem Dafoe yeah they're not afraid to be vulnerable on screen and show every kind of crevice of their face and have all the attention be on them and like not not you know the, the pressure's all on them not so much the other actors or the scenery or any other person on set it's just that person's face for a very long time and the, the shots on his face here last seem to last ages mm. I, I think the way that it approaches uh, people faces uh, and intimacy is is quite fearless mm. um, even from both a directorial point of view and from a performance point of view I'm thinking of uh, the moment where uh, Theo van Gogh lies in bed with his brother um, at the asylum, which is a really poignant emotional moment. Um, and you can see the actors kind of putting everything on the table in that moment. And I think that's the environment that Schnabel has created and that's the palette that he's given to the uh, his collaborators here. Um, and in the edit, that improvisational edit that you mentioned Stephen it's just trying to grab together all these different ideas and processes that he's given to all the different departments in this in terms of art direction sound score performance and bringing it all together to more create this film that's about a feeling than it is necessarily about a plot Mm -hmm. totally agree so if you'd like to check out more at Eternity's Gate content, do head over to the Curzon blog uh, where we've got two wonderful new additions there. Uh, We've got 10 of our favourite, somewhat lesser-known films about artists. Uh, There's a great double bill there of Russian Ark and Francophonia, um, which are two of the most relaxing cinema experiences uh, that I've ever had. 
Uh, God, they are wonderfully calming. Sam, you and I saw Russian Ark when we were, we were both quite sleepy in Berlin. Very, very sleepy. <laughs> and it, was, it was very nice. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's also there's a short video essay on there too that looks at the influence uh, that Van Gogh's paintings may have had on film composition. That's covering everything from A Clockwork Orange to Chaton Tango. Uh, so make sure you check that out too. Uh, it's less than two minutes, so you can certainly take the time out of your day to check that one out. I would encourage you to. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now it is time to uh, roll up the curtain, and unlike poor Vincent, we're all ears to talk about Dumbo. Oh, he did it! Ooh. That's the connection. Oh my God. <laughs> there it is. There it is. It's all about ears. Wow! Of course, wow. of course, it is. I feel like that was too soon. <laughs> I, need, I need a moment. <laughs> so this this is the second uh, big budget Burton blockbuster Disney remake. Uh, it's Dumbo. It's a beloved classic. Now it has been made twisted <laughs> by the mind of Tim Burton. Ella, tell us a little bit about this one. So, uh, so based on the original Disney animation, Dumbo tells a story of a small elephant who is born with very large ears. In Tim Burton's version, this is also what happens, but the story kind of expands and it sees Dumbo, who's taken care of by a family at the circus where he's at. The father of his family is Colin Farrell, who has two children. They kind of help Dumbo come, come to terms with his role within the circus, which is led by ringmaster Danny DeVito, but is threatened by Mr. Vandermeer, played by Michael Keaton. Wow. And there is a lot of additions to the original film as well, um, which we will, we will delve into momentarily. Um, but I, I want to start by just talking about Tim Burton, because at a certain point in our lives, there would have been great excitement about the new Tim Burton film. And imagine getting Tim Burton... $200 million to make whatever he wanted. And that would have been a wonderful thing to see out there maybe 20 years ago. Um, how are we feeling about Burton now? How's that uh, I think you were more for excited for the new like Jack Skellington hoodie, weren't you, Sam? Yeah, when yeah. I was about, um, I'd say age between... 10 and 25. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tim Burton, I think this is the case for a lot of people, I think, that Tim Burton was the first person you realize was a director and you're like, oh that's what a director does you make your own you make your film about your personality and he was the first director who i could at a young age recognize his films without knowing he directed it and learned what a director was and so he's the first you know, author that i kind of attached myself to um 
It's right to say you love him. I do love him, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's had, you know, perhaps the weirdest career in Hollywood, considering how he started making, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, which are huge box office successes, considering how absolutely insane they are. Mm. And then Batman, which became, you know, one of the highest grossing films of all time. So he's always been doing these big blockbusters, but in his own way. And I think since, you know, the early 2000s, they haven't been as well received, even though they pretty much all make a hell of money. Yeah, I, th- I think since then it's been more a case of blockbusters. Um, I said a hell of money. That's not a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I kind of like that's not a thing. I kind of like a hell of money. Yeah. A hell of money. <laughs> <laughs> Scene one, a hell of money. <laughs> the house that Burton built. Yeah. <laughs> they all make a ton of money. Um, but I, th- I think since um, the turn of millennium, those Burton films, those blockbusters, they have more been forced upon him and have been maybe uh, squeezed into a Burton-shaped box that maybe they didn't organically fit into. Yeah, I think he used to be like, oh, I could do something with that. And now he's like, yeah, I guess I could do something with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so that definitely leads us into exciting <laughs> anticipation for Dumbo, for sure. Um Ella, how how does this one compare to that classic, that 62-minute classic? Now, I must say, that 62-minute classic is very, very close to my heart. And I think with all of these Disney remakes that are coming up, I mean, there are so many that there's always one that you think, if they mess that up, I will roll up my sleeves. Dumbo was that for me. One great thing that Tim Burton's Dumbo has kept is a lot of the striking images from the first film. And he's really transposed them in a way that you think can only be done with the visual effects and the resources that resources that he has. So notably, I was looking out for the scene that gave me nightmares for about 10 to 15 years, which is the pink elephants. And he's got that in this film. And that's it's just wonderful. And it's interesting because... All of the bits in the original film when there's this thing about did Dumbo get drunk on soap bubbles and all of that kind of thing, they kind of wink to that and you think, oh no, they're just going to leave it there. They're going to, they're just going to, you know, they're not going to be silly with this and go with that. But then the pink elephants come back in a really different way and you've just got this beautiful, really striking magenta, which just, it really contrasts with the rest of the film, which is all in these tones of greys and just kind of drab asphalt kind yeah, of Yeah, it's like this, this moment of bubblegum thrown into a series yeah. of unfortunate events aesthetic. Absolutely. But then the film does what I was worried it would do and what a few Disney live action remakes do is that when these stories shift from these 1960s animated films where you've got magical talking animals, then when you bring that into 2019 when people are cynical about everything and have seen everything you've got to put something on screen that people will believe and you think well elephants don't talk if they have big ears they've they've, they've got to be quiet and there's definitely no crows that sing so that means that in this film the focus has shifted over to the humans instead so Dumbo is this thing who he's looked at he's laughed at in the same way as the original but the like the characters defending him are now humans and I think that kind of it dilutes the magic a little bit and then your humans have got to be so convincing to be worth watching more than the original animals were and I'm not sure if they are completely. It's it's interesting what you say about um, 
Burton's Leeds being these these outsiders, um, like the the Edward, uh, your even your your Batman's. Uh, a lot of these these characters are the the central lead performance as mm. well. Uh, and it's interesting here that perhaps the film falls away or loses its magic in those moments where the person, or in this case, an elephant that maybe Burton is most attached to, is not at center stage. Yeah. And it hits its highest points when Dumbo, the name of the film, uh, is at the center of it. Absolutely. And where you get these magical circus choreographed moments. Yeah, like, oh my God, when that elephant flies, it's amazing. I think just, I've I've always loved the way that Tim Burton builds these worlds like visually and I think the effects were so impressive and and the music as well like the way he always works with his longtime um, collaborator and composer Danny Elfman they just for me that they are the they are the masters of modern fairy tales I think they're so good at making you believe in magic which made me a bit disappointed that then you shift focus to you know these 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 two kids, Colin Farrell's kids, who are perfectly nice and good, and they have terrific intentions, but they, they're not Dumbo. Like they're not they're singing not crows. Elephant. They're not yeah. a flying elephant. They're not singing crows. Yeah. They're not a, a talking mouse. And and also they're not given much of a personality. I think they've got a problem that um, a lot of characters who aren't your you know heroic leading man have in that these two kids who sound quite good on paper. Um, but their their identities and personalities aren't fleshed out. So you've got the girl who is kind of the like the talking one who's leading. <laughs> <laughs> she's the one who talks most, and she defends Dumbo, and she's the one you know making things happen. And her defining characteristic is that she wants to be a scientist, and that's great when she says it the first time of maybe <laughs> 10, 12 times. And whenever anyone asks her anything about Dumbo, she's like, oh, well, we'll do it with scientific reasoning. I'm going to create things and do things. And they're like, that's great. But it just seems like a really tokenistic thing, which was like, oh, look, we'll let a girl do lots of talking and we'll let her do things that, you know, usually men do. And But, but then her personality has no more than that. Mm. And you don't really sense any kind of chemistry with... Dumbo with her brother who doesn't even have <laughs> like a one line I will be a scientist or astronaut. like a Bobby Draper but for Dumbo yes Dumbo and At Eternity's Gate they're not the only things uh, available this week in the cinema or on Curzon Home Cinema we've got a couple of uh, new releases and some older classics put up on the service so we've got uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters uh, which has just dropped on there Stephen you did yeah. an episode a while back on uh, that film a lovely film one of my favourites of last year possibly my favourite saw the Blu-ray in a shop the other day almost cried just from the cover <laughs> so go yeah definitely go see that <laughs> <laughs> and Sam, on the um, we've got we've also got the. <laughs> Don't start everything again. Sam, we've also got the portrait of the artist collection on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, any of the Blu-rays on there made you cry? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, uh, no. <laughs> No, they didn't. But I'll tell you what's on this collection, Jake. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, Loving Vincent is on there. We've also got uh, Frida starring... <laughs> Summer Hayek. We've also got Frida starring Summer Hayek. Uh, Mr. Turner is on there. Faces, Places. Uh, the Banksy film makes it through the gift shop. The Draftsman's Contract, which I know you're a big fan of. I certainly am, yeah. Uh, all tying in well. 
to got any, uh got any andre rublev on there we do have andre rublev mm-hmm. on there nice. so all these films that you spoke about earlier this you know how films can represent artists um they're all on there tying into eternity's gate which is also on cousin home cinema this weekend uh if you've got any thoughts on at eternity's gate or dumbo or any more of your favorite artistic portraits uh, do email us at podcast at curzon.com uh, or you can tweet us at Curzon Cinemas as well. Do get in touch. Uh, if it's your first time listening to the show, then please subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, do leave us a review or a comment. That would be absolutely wonderful. And if you have managed to get through all of this and you still want to hear more from us, uh, you can follow us all across various social media. Uh, Stephen, you're exclusively a letterboxed man these days. Where you can keep up your diary of what you've been watching. Yep. Uh, what's your username on there? Uh, Stephen Ryder with two R's at the end. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, Ella, you're on Twitter. I am indeed. I am at EFE Kemp. And Sam, you're there as well. I'm there, just in the background, just yeah. watching everyone else. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> At Sam Howlett underscore one. <laughs> uh, and I am there too. They haven't kicked me out just yet. And you can find me at Jake H. Cunningham. Thank you so much for listening. Farewell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.